Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, April 12, 2016, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. As the May Pleiadian lineup approaches, we're about to close the doors for the ninth Starseed Crystal Quest to Arkansas, which is May 15th through the 21st. We have room for just one more person. This is a soul group reunion, so only those with particular star markings are eligible. So if you feel the call of the crystals and you're not sure if you have those markings, I'll be happy to take a quick look and let you know. So just send me your birth info with the date, the exact time, the place, and your current location, and send that to crystals, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S, that's plural, crystals, at starseedhotline.com. And there's something new coming to Starseed Hotline very soon, by popular demand, you might say, because so many people have an ex- expressed, bleh, expressed an interest in learning astrology, we're about to release our introductory course called Basic Astrology for Starseeds. So, as they say, stay tuned for more details about the release date. We're so pleased to have Tom Carey with us this evening. He's an Air Force veteran who held top-secret clearance. Tom has been on the leading edge of investigations of what really happened in Roswell in 1947. With over 40 published works on the subject, he's appeared on several national radio and TV networks such as Coast to Coast, the Sci-Fi Channel, the History Channel, the Travel Channel, just to name a few. Since 1998, he has teamed with Don Schmidt, and together they wrote the best-selling books on Roswell called Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up, and its sequel, Unmasking Roswell, the Government's Biggest Cover-Up. Both of these books are considered the best books ever written on the Roswell incident. And you can check out his website at roswellinvestigator.com. At the top of the show, it's the Starseed News with Anastasia, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you're not going to hear in the mainstream. And then right after the news, just before Tom comes on, we're going to have a quick visit from our friend Holly, and she's going to tell us more about her upcoming retreat in France, which will be a very powerful experience for those participating. We'd like to thank Fiona and Vanya for hosting the switchboard this evening for any listeners that may have a question or comment for Tom. If you'd like to chat with like-minded people, we have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and we always appreciate Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download any show in our archives on iTunes or right from our Blog Talk Radio episode page using the cloud with an arrow on it. We'd appreciate your support of our show, and you can do that by clicking follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notice. The toll-free number for Starseed Hotline is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. Remote healing sessions for people and pets are also available with Tammy. 
If you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And then if you want the Stage 2 interpretation in addition to that of your solar return chart, please order it at least two or three months ahead of time to make sure that you get it in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. So first this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia with more wonderful starseed news. Good evening, Ariel. Hello. Hi. Hello, starseed listeners. We are back together again and quite a bit of news to cover. Well, we to start with, we do have a geomagnetic storm in progress. It's a G1 class geomagnetic storm. It is happening today as Earth enters a stream of fast moving solar wind. But there is a big sunspot out there that's now getting bigger. They say that the sun's headlong plunge into solar minimum has been interrupted by the surprise emergence of a big sunspot. It's wide enough to swallow the Earth, they say, with room to spare. And its name is AR2529, which has doubled in size over this past weekend. They say this behemoth is now being photographed by amateur astronomers around the world and is closely being monitored by NASA spacecraft. And that comes to you courtesy of spaceweather.com. Well, Texas has had an exciting couple of days, to say the least. Perhaps you've heard about this already. Hailstones the size of baseballs pounded Texas yesterday, smashing windows, cars, and buildings. Footage shared by people in Dallas and the Fort Worth region showed astonishing clumps of ice that fell during one of the worst storms the region has seen in months. Now, I saw the videos of this, and oh my goodness. Well, it all appeared to come from an ominous-looking green shelf cloud, which shone a luminous glow over northern Texas. Now, the damage drove officials in Wiley to close all schools today. And the storm traveled east from north Texas, hitting counties that border Oklahoma and Arkansas. And, incidentally, Oklahoma also saw, saw baseball-sized hailstones yesterday. Uh, suspected lightning bolts struck a church in El Dorado, Arkansas, and lightning also struck Birmingham, Alabama. Now, they say that the thunderstorms show no sign of letting up today, with large hail, flooding, severe winds, and a possible tornado forecast to hit southern Texas in San Antonio, Corpus Christi, and Houston. Fierce storms are also expected to sweep east through southern parts of Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. And it's not only the U.S. that's had some freak hailstorms. Actually, in Saudi Arabia, in the heart of the desert, they had a freak hailstorm. just occurred late last week. They said it was a very unusual, freaky hailstorm that hit Saudi Arabia, covered the desert, streets, and entire cities with white, icy stones. And these thunderstorms were so powerful, they created a tornado right near Iridia. Wow. And in Afghanistan, then we had a reported 6.6 earthquake uh, that occurred on Sunday. Uh, reports came from South Asia that described buildings swaying for more than a minute with tremors felt in the Pakistani city of Lahore. Now, Pakistani officials measured the magnitude at 7.1, but Germany's research center for geosciences set the quake's magnitude at 6. So I guess they compromised and settled for the headline magnitude of 6.6. No matter how you cut it, though, that's a good size quake. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And in Indonesia, we had a magnitude 5-point quake on the same day, on Sunday. And uh, near the Keisha volcano in Alaska, we have had yesterday a magnitude 5.6 earthquake. Uh, it was in Alaska. They did uh, uh, issue a provisional tsunami alert for the region. Other details about the quake are not immediately available, and uh, apparently there have been no immediate reports of damage or casualties as of today. And I imagine if there had been any, I would have heard about it by now. Um, now, there is a volcano in Africa, which we don't hear much about volcanoes in Africa. But the Niragongogo uh, mountain is suddenly undergoing a new and more active phase, and they say it's got the volcanologists pretty worried about it. The new activity has been preceded by a series of earthquakes that's been knocking large rocks into the crater. And they say that there is a vent on the side of the caldera closest to the city, uh, the nearby city at the base of the mountain. In addition, new gas and steam vents have opened up on the flank of the volcano, close to where the lava erupted in the 2002 eruption, which incidentally was a pretty bad eruption. And in our stories about birds being in the wrong places, well, there's been another one in the wrong time and the wrong place. There was a snowy owl that was seen in Cornwall, UK. It has flown way off course. Now, these birds are native to the Arctic regions in North America and Eurasia, rather than the tip of West Cornwall in the UK. So there's another example here, birds getting lost. Animals that never get lost are getting lost. And you know, this winter has set records across the northeastern United States. They say that we've had the warmest December on record, all the way up to a blizzard of 2016 and snow in April. And they say that the winter of 2015-16 has put itself in the record books across the northeastern U.S. They say the transition to a strong El Nino brought a much different weather pattern to the region compared to 1415, which, as you all probably remember, brought a generous amounts of cold and snow. And there have been a number of uh, whale beachings. Uh, this happens just about, well, maybe not every week, but almost every week, that I don't discuss in the news. Can't hardly stand to talk about it, but um, it's uh, happening this week, so I'm just going to share with you that they found a dwarf sperm whale that was beached and died just off the coast in India, and a third dead whale has been found within a month off of central Vietnam. Again, something happening in the oceans bringing these bird, these uh, whales up to the surface. Well, in India, they are really suffering from the heat. Uh, they have an all-time heat record going on right now of 115 degrees, and it's unprecedented. In the capital city of Odisha, uh, they are under the grip of the uh, most severe heat season they can remember in recorded history. They say it's uh, been 115 degrees and it's forced the closure of all schools until at least April 20th. So it was the second highest uh, temperature in India recorded, and they say that April is just halfway through and these temperatures are setting new records every other day. And they're concerned that the peak summer months may bring even harsher weather to several cities in eastern India. 115 degrees in April. Wow. Mm. Well, here's a story for you. Recently, there was a woman who was shopping at a Northridge, California shopping mall 
who was uh, attacked by a man. He actually ran past her and bumped into her and swiped her handbag. Well, imagine her shock. Imagine anyone's shock at getting your handbag taken from you, you know, swiped all of a sudden out of the blue. But this woman was even for more of a shock when a man on horseback, no less, saw what happened and started to chase the thief. The man on a steed, <clears throat> excuse me, doing a great deed, as they say. <clears throat> this looks like something out of a Hollywood movie. <laughs> it was in the parking structure at the mall when the woman said she was walking back to her car when her purse was ripped out of her hands. Now, police said that at the same time, a man was riding his horse on a busy street next to the parking structure. He apparently heard the woman screaming uh, that her purse had just been stolen. Police said that the horseman chased the suspect around the mall and finally got him cornered. He then returned the purse to its owner in front of a Sears store. Police said the thief ultimately got away, but nonetheless, nothing was missing from the purse. Imagine that. A guy on horseback. <laughs> Who was that masked man? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. The women in the article that were quoted were saying, well, does he have a brother? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, uh, this is a lovely story out of Australia. Uh, New Zealand has a dog trainer who's pretty well known. And this trainer has taught rescue dogs to drive, drive cars. Well, now he's done the unthinkable, as if that weren't unthinkable. But he's managed to train dogs how to pilot a plane. I'm not kidding. And this is part of his efforts to prove just how capable rescue dogs can really be. Now, last year, this animal trainer and zoologist spent four months in the U.K. working with rescue dogs for the U.K. TV series Dogs Might Fly, which is apparently only just beginning to air in Britain. In a world first, the man was able to successfully train three rescue dogs, Reggie, Shadow, and Alfie, to fly a plane and even perform tricks, including a figure-eight maneuver. That's for real. There's photos on the net of these dogs sitting in the cockpit flying the plane. Of course, you know, I imagine he's a co-pilot, so anything goes wrong, he's, he's going to be able. It sounds kind of like a PR stunt, but, you know, it's a fun thing to, comp, uh, to contemplate. So there you have it, dogs flying planes. Cool. Well, here's a nice article I want to share with you tonight at the end of our show, and this comes from uh, a fast company. It was posted on the Internet. And the title of it is The Hidden Power of Listening to Your Gut Feelings. Well, I think this is pretty important for Starseed and just about everybody, so I want to share it with you. You know, your gut has been cataloging a whole lot of information for as long as you've been alive. Scientists are beginning to understand just how much knowledge is contained in our gut, not to mention the fact that the gut also has a brain. But they say trusting your gut is trusting the collection of all your subconscious experiences. This is according to a licensed therapist and professor of human behavior at Hunter College. Now, she says that it's the unconscious, conscious, learned experience center in the gut that you can draw on from your years of being alive. The gut holds insights that aren't immediately available to your conscious mind, but they're all things that you've learned and felt in the moment, we might not be readily able to access specific information, but she says our gut has it at the ready. She said that we need to take time out to reflect. 
She said that after a meeting or interaction that requires a decision on your part, give yourself mental space to reflect. Instead of grabbing a coffee in the kitchen, take a walk around the block. Spend time alone, even if it's just a minute, but hopefully, from my part, maybe a little bit longer. She said if it's a bigger decision that you need to make, create a larger window before you need to respond. Take control. Don't react. Start telling people, I need to sleep on this. I'll get back to you tomorrow. Begin to build that response into your conversations, especially with people that you're around the most. It's telling people how you function. She said that you have to create space to listen to what your gut is telling you. She said that's why people say they get their best ideas in the shower. So every time you have a big decision or a tough choice to make, give yourself at least a half-hour window to make it. And at the end of the half hour, she says, you're going to have to use your gut. She said that forces you to be more instinctive. The article goes on to say that really trusting our guts or tuning into that inner intuition is not really natural. While it might be instinctive, uh, many things in our lives cause us to override that. Well, that's very easy to understand in this world, particularly with the nature of immediacy and doing everything fast, fast, fast not taking time to be with oneself. But that instinctive force is there for us if we learn to listen to it, we begin to train it, hone it, pay attention to it. And the way to do this is to begin to set a track record. Each successful decision that you make based on how your gut felt or what it told you is uh, a precedent for the next time because there are ways to tune in and uh, sense what is right for you. And you only do that on an individual basis by beginning to practice that. And, you know, in my clairvoyant work, people are always struggling with decisions. That's often why they contact me. So it is very possible, in fact, it's your birthright, to tune into that inner map, the map of your soul, and uh, to find your own way through life by using that inborn ability to sense what your gut is telling you. So practice. Practice makes perfect. And uh, let's all get much better at doing that because external information, as we all know, is grossly unreliable and is often highly deceptive. So we want to find a way through life that's our own signature, that honors our own unique individual path, that honors our soul. We need to consult that internal map within us, and that's your gut. It's going to tell you. It's going to open up information and direction that isn't going to take you off track. And a lot of people say to me, I feel so lost in the woods. Well, yes, we are often very lost in the woods. And this internal gut instinct is the way out. There's an old saying, the only way out is in. So go within and learn to practice this uh, intuition with your inner insides and do what your gut tells you. But take the time to listen a relationship. It's having a relationship with yourself and ultimately with your soul that put that kind of neurobiological wiring within you to guide you on your own personal path. So that's it for tonight's news. It's going to be a great show, Ariel. It sure is. As always. Uh-huh. So, well, thank you, Anastasia, for bringing us the Starseed News. You do such a great job and we really appreciate it. Thank you. You're so welcome. 
So um, right now we're going to have a, a little quick visit here with our friend Holly, and uh, and then we will bring Tom on. So Holly, let me get your microphone open and Lavendar. Okay, you're on the air. Hi Holly, how you doing? I'm doing terrific. How are you, Ariel? I'm doing just fine, just fine. Lavendar, are you there? Yes, I am. Holly, I know okay. that you have a trip coming up, so take it away, girl. Tell us all about it. Okay, thank you. I'm really excited for the opportunity to share this. Um, it was actually on our Crystal Quest, because I think it was the second one you had in May of 2013, that I met Claudette Thomas there, and we became lifelong friends. And we are now hosting a retreat together in the south of France in Rennes-le-Chateau, this magical area steeped in goddess lore and Mary Magdalene energies, and it's called Grace and Ease. It's a women's only retreat, and it's on May 14th to the 21st. It's a Saturday to Saturday, so seven nights in this amazing village of Rennes-le-Chateau that's in the you know base of the Pyrenees. We're going to be doing excursions to really amazing areas like Mount Bougarac and caves, sacred caves, sacred fountains in the area, the baths at Ren Le Ben nearby, so many amazing places to go and tour and see. But then also what's unique about this is it's really not just a kind of tour the sacred France area retreat. It's a, it's a retreat where we are weaving in a lot of group discussions. Claudette will be leading the group with some breath work and some body movement things and lots of diving deep into uh, sort of practical spirituality and how we can take the energies from this amazing area and weave them into our lives and really experience what it feels like to live fully present uh, to all the divinity that's within us. So it's really shaping up to be a phenomenal week and we are getting closer and closer. We still have some spots available and I just booked a ticket into Barcelona to get there. It's one of the closest major cities there and there's some really good airfare rates going right now from the u.s so it's um it's a fantastic time and uh it's uh it's going to be a really really powerful retreat do you have any questions for me about that lavender why don't you uh put your email your your information so people can find you yeah absolutely there's a really easy way you can find out more information about um the the retreat center there um, we have a whole page called graceandease.us, or us. So G-R-A-C-E-A-N-D-E-A-S-E.us. And it tells all the details about the retreat. There are beautiful pictures of the area. Uh, it tells biographical information about Claudette and her experience as the lead facilitator at a healing center in Costa Rica for the last 10 years my background doing the work that I've been doing with business leaders about mindset work and things like that. And then um, more information about the week and the pricing, which is amazing. Lavender, we've been able to work with um, Claudette's connections to the people that now own Le Labadou and we've been able to keep the price really, really low. So it starts at $1,800 and goes on up to $2,200. And that includes lodging, um, three meals a day, um, the, the accommodations there, and all the retreats and the excursions and transportation to the excursions. So um, really an amazing deal for what we're offering. Um, but if anybody yeah. wants to register they, or find out more, they just go to that website and everything's right there. Oh, the prices sound really good. And, you know, when I, when I first met you at that quest, 
I had a I had a feeling that you were going to be conducting the sacred site tours sometime in your life, mm. and here you are doing it. It's really funny because I think every year now, I think I've had four annual solar retreat readings with you, and every time you said, are you leading retreats to France to work with women? <laughs> <laughs> I kept saying it, yeah. <laughs> I'm finally stepping into it. So, yeah, You're finally stepping into it. Well, thank it. you so much for coming on and, and sharing this with our audience at this time. So um, I sure hope that those that are listening, if they've been sitting on the fence waiting to go to France, that that maybe they'll contact you and, and, and get a place to, to be on your tour. Wonderful. Thanks so much for the opportunity to share it, Lavender. I appreciate it. Thank you, honey. Okay, bye-bye. You're so welcome. Bye-bye. bye-bye. Thanks, Ariel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that is going to be exciting, and uh, thanks for bringing that to us, Holly. So we are going to bring our featured guest on now, Mr. Tom Carey. There you are on the air. Hey, Tom, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be with you. Oh, we are really looking forward to um, the work that you have been doing and talking about that. So um, Lavendar is going to kick it off for us. So, Tom, i got to tell you, when, when I first saw the uh, title Children of Roswell, I thought, hmm, what's this? I thought I'd, I thought I'd read or, or knew about all the Roswell stories but I've got to tell you, this one takes a whole new direction of information, and it's very hard to put your book down. You know, it's like, wow, you really pulled up your sleeves and went for the deep, deep cover. And I'm so proud of you and, and your, your your friend, Donald. Well, thank you so much. I am humbled at such praise. Well, I just, um, I I can't tell you which story that I like the best. I mean, I... I just really got hung up on on the sheriff's story and then Dee Proctor and James Wood. I don't know which one. I mean, all of them are just absolutely fascinating. But why don't we start briefly by you talking about the Roswell incident and how it became the most important UFO case of all time. There might be some people uh, listening to our show that haven't heard about it, but I doubt it. I think everybody's probably heard about Roswell. But just give us a brief... uh, intro into into what you're going to be talking about next. Well, well, Roswell, as we speak, is a is a name, a term, the name of a city, uh, the name of an event that's known around the world. Uh, and am I pronouncing uh, Lavender? Is that am I pronouncing your name right? Or Lavender? Uh huh. Lavender. Lavender. Okay. Uh, it's. I mean, if you go to I, I I heard you talking about you're going to have a trip to France. Um, I'm sure you go to France. Mention Roswell. They will they will have an idea of what you were talking about. They they probably don't know all the details, but they know it has something to do with a town in New Mexico that's and something to do with a flying saucer or spaceship. So right. it's known around the world. Well, back in 1947. It was a two-day story. Day one was a newspaper headline that the Roswell Army Airfield, uh, just south of Roswell, about five miles south of the city, had recovered. Well, they used the term captured, but uh, by the time it got into the news, they really recovered a flying saucer, and that's the term that they used. Well, the very next day, the headline was, well, 
Sorry, folks, it wasn't a flying saucer. It was a weather balloon. End of story. Now, if you if you think think that uh, over a bit, you're thinking, well, how could they the the these military people that are top people in the in the service, uh, how could they mistake a, a a balloon for an interplanetary spacecraft? Well, at the time, nobody really cared. They just figured, oh well, story's over, and the story was dead for the next thirty years. So a two-day story dies for the next 30 years until the the base intelligence officer, a fellow by the name of Jesse Marcel, he was a major. He was dying of emphysema, and he was a, uh, a uh, member of this ham radio network. And somehow he started talking about having handled pieces of a flying saucer wreckage uh, 30 years previously. And uh, a researcher uh, named Stanton Friedman, we're now talking about 1978, he was in Louisiana giving a talk on uh, UFOs. And I don't know if it was at a, a TV station or a, uh, at an auditorium. I, I don't know which it was. But after his talk, someone said, hey, Stan, there's a fellow here that lives uh, in Houma, Louisiana. It's just outside of... Uh, I don't know if he was in Baton Rouge or uh, uh, New Orleans, but uh, not far away. So he gave him the name of Jesse Marcel, that he that Stan ought to contact him. So Stan, before he left Louisiana, gave him a call, and sure enough, uh, this uh, former major told him the story from 1947 about seeing all this wreckage, and he believed that it was from a flying saucer. He still believed it. And that uh, so began the civilian investigation of the Roswell incident, as it was called. Uh, two years later, the first book about Roswell came out, 1980, called The Roswell Incident. And the, the investigation was off and running. And here I am, uh, I've been on this one case for 25 years. My co-author Don Schmidt has been on it uh, about two more two more years than I have, and it's the most uh, heavily investigated case. It's the best known case. It's the it's the best UFO case of all time, and for that matter, I, I find it the most interesting UFO case of all time, which probably has something to do why it's stuck around so long, and, and people are so still interested in it. And I can tell you that uh, before they covered it up back in 1947, it was, in fact, the crash of an interplanetary spaceship from where we don't know, why it was here we don't know, but it did crash, and there were five occupants, one of whom survived the crash. It lived until 1952 when it perished during a, uh, an experiment that they were doing on it. But the case was covered up for 30 years until 1978, and it uh, has not uh, gone out of the public's mind since that, since that time. So Let that, me ask it. you, um, 
have you gone to the uh, Information of Freedom Act? Are, are you getting pages back that are redacted, or did you get some of your information from from that source? Actually, no. Okay. Uh, the uh, someone checked out. Uh, I, I myself uh, have not use the Freedom of Information or the FOIA request because they, oftentimes they take years and, you you know, you've forgotten about you ever sent one before they answer you and they can they can uh, redact and they can keep from you anything they want. Okay. Others have. Others have, uh, have used it. But with regard to the Roswell case, there is nothing. Uh, someone... Uh, when they released the uh, or uh, declassified the Project Blue Book files, the Roswell file had a single newspaper clipping in it. That was it. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. Okay. That, that was all the Air Force claimed they had about the Roswell case was a single newspaper clipping, and that was it. Well, in 1993-94... Uh, when the uh, there, there was a, a congressman in New Mexico named Stephen Schiff, he's dead now. But in 1993, some of his constituents who lived in Roswell had asked him to see what he could find out about the Roswell case. If there was anything in the archives somewhere, some paperwork, some documents, photographs, anything that he could find about the Roswell case. Well, he first went to the Department of Defense, and I can't remember who the uh, Secretary of Defense was at that time. Um, his name escapes me. But uh, he gave him the runaround. He gave uh, Stephen Schiff the runaround and said, oh, you ought to go over to the National Archives. That, that's where, that's where the, you'll find it. Well, so Schiff goes over to the National Archives, and they said, well, wh who told you that? We don't have anything here. You ought to see the Department of Defense. He says, well, that's where I came from. So he realized that he was getting the runaround, the, the classic runaround. So he said, I'll fix them. So he got the General Accounting Office, the uh, investigative arm of Congress, to get after the case to see if they could find any documentation about the Roswell case and whether it had been properly handled, properly classified, not to prove the case one way or the other, but just to see if the, docu if the documents were handled correctly. Well, they found out after a two-year search that there were no documents, that whatever documents there were had been destroyed at an unknown date by an unknown party for an unknown reason. So... That's all that they could come up with is that documents were gone by an unknown authority. Now, if you've ever been in the military, I was in the Air Force, uh, you can't go to the bathroom without an authorization. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't go to breakfast without an authorization. So the, the fact that they could not find an authority on this really made it a mystery because whoever did it didn't want to be identified and why they had done it. So, Well, you know, uh, the thing that was interesting to me about Schiff, Stephen Schiff, the congressman, is that he went to Peter Jennings, 
and had Peter Jennings start doing the investigation, and it wasn't long till both of them were dead of cancer. Yes. Uh, Stephen Schiff died of a virulent form of skin cancer. I never heard of anybody dying of skin cancer, but he did in short order. And uh, Peter Jennings, who was no fan of Roswell, uh, uh, I did not, uh, to be honest with you, uh, Lavender, I did not know what he had passed away from. But uh, he was uh, Jennings was no fan of Roswell, and he he had a a show I believe it was 2005, just before he died. He had a show on UFOs, and the well, Roswell. They made him do it. They made him do it. They made. Well, him I'm do sorry. It. Yeah. Uh, what, what Steve? Well, Jennings uh, that. Uh, I forget what it was called, UFOs, uh, something or other. But the segment on Roswell, for me, was very disappointing because Jennings just dismissed it as a myth. Well, that that's was- because he, he had already recorded the truth about it, and the government came in and threatened him with his life and made him do it. And I have very sound sources that told me how that happened. Oh. Yeah. I, I- that's uh, that I I would like to hear. Yeah. I would like to hear about that. <laughs> and of course, he was dead within a, a couple of months. I mean, it wasn't yes. long after that that he was gone. He was. Uh, he was a Canadian, and uh, he, the first. What was interesting about that show was that the first part of the show was very even-handed. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, he's doing a good job here, and boy, I can't wait till he gets gets on to Roswell because then he'll really do a good number on it. Right. Especially, especially since we had his, uh, we were down. Don Schmidt and I were down in Roswell for a week with his production company. We took them to the crash site. We uh, had introduced them to some witnesses, and we're thinking, oh boy, they're really going to do a number on this. But I'll, I'll tell you this, Lavender, is uh, we could tell from the look in the producer's eye. I don't know what his name was, and his staff that they were not buying any of it. They they had come to, they had come to Roswell the, with a preconceived notion that there was nothing to it no matter what we said, what we did, they at least in my opinion and uh, Don Schmidt's opinion they were they were not buying it uh, at all. And it came when the show aired that's what uh, we we expected something like that and uh, Jennings just dismissed it as a myth, which was very disappointing. Okay. Well, let's just go on with with other questions. Um, Since the case was covered up, what special techniques were employed to enforce the silence of the witnesses? Well, that's a good question. Um, The the silencers, let's call them the uh, military and the government uh, and military silencers, uh, they first had to convince the president, Harry Truman, that the case should be covered up. And that was done by a fellow who was the vice, uh, he was the um, deputy chief of the Air Force uh, named uh, uh, Vandenberg. Uh, uh, I forget his first name. Uh, Hoyt, Hoyt S. Vandenberg, lieutenant general, soon to be the chief of staff of the Air Force, and then later the uh, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, he had in his mind. Now he was he was back in Washington, where where they, they were controlling what was happening with 
with the press inquiries because the, once the press got a hold of the story, that my goodness, we got to you know let's find out more about this. So where you know where is it from and what do you have and blah blah blah. Well, Hoyt Vandenberg, he remembered the famous radio show from 1938, the War of the Worlds radio show starring Orson Welles, where they recreated the H.G. Wells uh, story about an invasion from Mars. And uh, even though that the... the, the uh, broadcast had announced beforehand that it was it was a recreation it was not it was not an actual event that was going on it was just a recreation of the hg wells story they presented it as a news like like uh like a news broadcast we interrupt this broadcast blah 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 blah. there's there's been a landing in grover's mill new jersey of strange beings well people coming in late to the show thought it was a real news broadcast and there was panic on the East Coast. Uh, New Jersey and New York and Maryland, there was panic on the East Coast. And Hoyt Vandenberg, because they were faced with a decision, do we go public with this UFO crash or do we keep silent? Well, he remembered that H.G. Wells uh, story on the radio from 1938, and he did – he. He feared panic in the streets. Now, this is 1947, mind you. Today, I, I don't think it would, you know, I think it would be almost welcoming, you know, if if uh, it was if we learned that yes, there are truly others out there in the universe, and yes, uh, uh, on occasion they visit here. Well, I don't think that would bother too many people because we're. You know, we're far removed from the days of uh, Martian invasions from the 40s. Right. So, but in 47, Vandenberg feared panic in the streets. So he said, we got to cover this up. we got to cover this up. Until we know what it is that we have here, we, we can't chance uh, the disintegration of our financial institutions and our religions and all that sort of stuff and people – People panicking in the streets. We just—he just had that vision, and so uh, if you want to point to a time when the cover-up began, which is still in existence, by the way, it was uh, the Roswell case, 1947. Right. Why don't we talk a little bit now about Sheriff George Wilcox and how this whole Roswell incident destroyed him? The the one thing that he said that I just kind of perked up and smiled at was, he said, if I had to do it over again, I would have called the press and let them come and take pictures, and then maybe everything would have been different. Yes. That was one of the big regrets in his life. a little about the sheriff and what he went through and his family. Well, uh, Sheriff Wilcox, George Wilcox, was the sheriff of Chavez County, and the county seat was in... um, Roswell, and uh, he was used by the Air Force. When this happened, he was used by the Air Force because he was fluent in Spanish to the Air Force was, they they were presented, there were three groups that they had to silence. The first group were, uh, were the media. 
The story had gotten on the Associated Press wire, went around the world. The, the world was just brimming with excitement about this. Oh my goodness! What's what? Where's it from? What, what you know? What do they look like? What's that? Tell us about it. We're we're dying to hear. Well, he, they had to kill the story in the press, and that they did that with that weather balloon story. They held a press conference saying, "Oh, sorry, folks, it wasn't a spaceship from Mars. It was a weather balloon." Whoop! Yep, good enough for me. No story here. So that was <laughs> that's all it took to kill it in the press. Real easy. The next group was almost as easy. It was the military uh, people who were involved in the recovery of the spaceship and the bodies. Uh, we're talking about uh, somewhere between 100 and 200 people involved in the cleanup and the transportation of the, the wreckage and the bodies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They handled them through threats uh, of, uh, if you want to talk about this they, they would put they would gather a squadron there were several squadrons at roswell they put them in hangars and in comes the the squadron commander okay you guys whatever you think is happening isn't and if you want to hear more about it or read more about it you can read about it in leavenworth meaning the leavenworth federal prison and that seemed to work because the uh uh, the, the fellas, you know, they, they wanted to stay out of prison, so they didn't talk about it. And it worked for the most part, uh, again, for, for 30 years. And still today, many of them refuse to talk to us, uh, the ones that are left. So that's the second group. The third group was the real problem, the civilians who lived in and around Roswell. Now, as you know, Lavender, the military only has jurisdiction over civilians, one, in time of war, and two, in time of national emergency when martial law has been declared. Those are the only two times the military can direct uh, and have uh, control over, the, over civilians. Well, in this case, that, they, they threw away the book. They, they they used Sheriff Wilcox. I guess they could say, well, no, no, we didn't do it. We just, the sheriff did it. Well, they used the sheriff. And I'm, I surmise that Wilcox, because Roswell was a town of about 25,000 people at the time, and there were about ten to 15,000 military on the base. So the military uh, uh, contributed a lot to the Roswell economy. They, they, that was a fact, and I'm, I suspect that the reason Wilcox went along with this was he was thought he was doing the best for Rod, the city of Roswell by cooperating, so that the the military would keep uh, the close relationship they had with Roswell. The, he did say, however, in his uh, sort of his. Uh, he died in 1961, he did say to his family that it was a big mistake that he made, that he should have called the media first, as you, as you mentioned. Then, if the media had gotten there first, the story wouldn't have been covered up like it was. But at the time, he called the media, I'm sorry, the, uh, the base, 
because of what I just said, of the close relationship between the, the base and the city, and the fact that whatever crashed on Mac Brazel's ranch appeared to come from the sky, and anything that came from the sky was the provenance of the Air Force. So that's why he called the base. He realized later on that he probably, that he wished he didn't, but that's, that's what happened. So they used Sheriff Wilcox to go to mostly the Hispanic community in Roswell to deliver death threats to not only adults but their children if they talked about what they knew, namely that they had either seen or knew about the crash of a UFO, and especially they had seen or knew about the little bodies with the big heads. If they ever talked about that, they would be killed, and not only would the the parents be killed, but their children would be killed. So that's what they used uh, for the civilians. Uh, A little later on, for special treatment, they singled out the various uh, people who they felt might need a little more coaxing. So they brought in a fellow from Wright-Patterson, a, a, a colonel, lieutenant colonel named uh, Hunter Penn. And uh, he was from, in World War II, he flew with a outfit called Hell's Angels. And so he apparently was uh, someone that in time of emergency, he would, they kept him under glass, but in time of emergency, they, they broke the glass and let him out. Of course, they used him to go around to especially the ranchers, living around Roswell, again, who knew about the crash and knew about the bodies. And he was authorized to use physical force, if necessary, to get them to cooperate in keeping silent about what they knew. We got all this information from his uh, uh, foster daughter, or step, I'm not sure if it was his stepdaughter or foster daughter, right? I always get that mixed up. But he, she was not his natural daughter. And we got the information from her that he was a brutal person. In real, as a father, he was a brutal person. As a husband to her mother, he was a brutal person. And he had a fondness for ice picks. And she thought that he may have used one in Roswell. So that's how they maintained, the, got the, the civilians to keep silent about this. And I know myself... A couple of years ago, I made a point to try to contact all the ranchers around Roswell who were still alive, and basically they wouldn't tell me anything. They would not tell me anything. So so uh, shook up were they from uh, what had happened that uh, they, they just go, oh, I don't know anything. Oh, no, no, sorry, I forget. I don't know. So they were not much help, but uh, that's how... The, the Air Force covered up the Roswell event. First, it was by uh, appeals to national security and patriotism. But when the rubber met the when the rubber met the road, they used physical force, death threats, and maybe even physical uh, and uh, well, physical force and uh, death threats. I don't think that could happen in today's climate. Do you? No, it, it couldn't. There's uh, 
Uh, too many people are now. You see, in '47, the military was held in a high regard because they had just won World War II. Yeah. And they were still coming home, and the, uh, our military—they were just like gods because they had beaten the uh, the Axis powers, Germany, Japan, and Italy. And uh, basically, whatever the military said was believed. Whatever they wanted was okay with everybody. And uh, but today, that that could not happen because uh, uh, and, and you're also dealing with. Uh, People out in the boondocks of uh, remote New Mexico, except, you know, Roswell was a little town, 25,000. But the ranchers, they lived out in the boondocks. They might have gotten a weekly newspaper, and maybe uh, uh, a few people had a radio, and very few people had telephones. Yeah, they didn't get uh, telephones until 1986 in that area. Correct, correct. Yeah. so that's fairly recent. <laughs> and uh, I have spent a lot of time in that area. My my parents had racehorses, and we were in Rio Dosa every summer. So oh, no. I've been connected to that whole story and things for for many many years, and it's been a total fascination. But when I read the little story that you wrote about James Wood, I just had to giggle to myself. So would you tell the story of James Wood's uh, father and how he? It came across that little piece of uh, silvery magic. Yes, uh, James Wood was a little little kid in 1947, and uh, his father, uh, I think his name was Charles Wood, Charles Austin Wood, was a dispatcher, uh, uh, worked for the radio, uh, radio, <laughs> for the railroad uh, company, and. Uh, there was a little railroad spur that uh, went right past the Air Force Base in Roswell, right near the, the, the big hangar, which is still there, by the way, right near the big hangar where all of the wreckage and all of the bodies had been brought in from the crash site. And they, they had uh, MPs guarded it day and night, both inside and outside, with orders to shoot anybody who tried to get into the the uh, the hangar? Who was not authorized? Shoot first and ask questions later over a weather balloon. And uh, anyway, this one day, this is during the recovery, the the latter parts of the UFO recovery. Uh, there was a uh, Charles Wood was directed to go to the the railroad spur and uh, check in some stuff that they were bringing in from the base, the big hangar, that they were going to load onto one of the boxcars. And so uh, he got up like 7 a.m., and sure enough, the, up, comes, up comes a Jeep with some armed military guys in it, and then a, then a couple trucks full of this strange metallic debris. Look, looks, you know, looked like aluminum, but uh, he, was, you know, he wasn't paying too much attention to it at first. But as they were loading it, uh, a piece of wreckage, a little piece had fallen out of the pile, and uh, apparently none of the military guys noticed it. And uh, Wood, or Chester Wood had 
and looking at this stuff, and he says, "Boy, some of that some of that record wreckage is behaving funny. It seems like it, some of it's real stiff, and others seems to be almost fluid." So, when the loading was done, they brought over this clipboard, and he signed it. Yep, it was all delivered. And so the military guys left, closed the gate because this is just outside the base gate, just outside, and. Uh, so he he looks around, and apparently the the, the military guys they did, did not see this piece that had fallen. So he went over. Instead of picking it up immediately, he put his foot over it and scrunched it into the ground. He he trampled it and scrunched it into the ground so you couldn't see it. And then he left. Well, later on that night, this is like you know late at night. He says, "Okay, I'm gonna." going to see if that piece is still there so he drives over to the base and it goes out so he goes by the fence line there and uh, looks and sure enough there it is it's still there so he picks it up puts it in his pocket and goes back home well he waits a couple years it's now 1952 this is like five years later and no one apparently has missed this one little piece because nobody came knocking at the door asking for the, the, the piece of uh, metal. And so he says, well, I guess it's okay. Uh, they, they have not missed it. So what he did is he put it in a box. His son, um, oh, I forget his first James. His son James, James Wood, is now on his sixth birthday in 1952, he presented his son with this box. And so the son says, oh, thank you, Dad. Uh, so he opens the box, and in, his, in the box is this little piece of metal that he found. So the son is, uh, what is this? You know, uh, what do I do with this, Dad? And he says, well, pick it up. Well, the son picks it up, and it doesn't weigh anything. And it's, he says, now try wadding that thing up. So he wads it up in his hand, and he says, oh, I can't feel anything. So he says, so he opens his hand, and out floats this piece of metal-like object. It's, uh, you know, about four inches square, uh, and it floats down to the table without a crease. And he, so the father says, try cutting it with a scissors. He so he couldn't cut it. He couldn't scratch it. He couldn't do anything to it. And so with all these properties, the son was a burgeoning musician, uh, musician, oh, magician. <laughs> Boy, uh, sometimes you can't talk right. Um, he's a burgeoning uh, magician. And uh, he used to hold, uh, and he's only six years old, and so he says, I'm going to use this in my magic act. Well, he was using out out in the back of the house. He had a, there was a little uh, a little playhouse, I guess, some sort of a shack where, where the the child and his buddies would hold meetings. You know, they're all like six, seven years old, and this is where the son James put on his uh, magic acts. Well, the climax to his magic act now was to bring out this piece of metal and do and put it through its paces. And and all the kids would go, wow, what is that? Where, where did you get that? And well, the kid that didn't, you know, the kid didn't know. He says, my father gave it to me. Well, after a while, 
adults started showing up at the six-year-old's magic acts. Adults started, they wanted to see this piece of metal. And uh, lo and behold, after a while, not long thereafter, the piece of metal disappeared. And apparently the they reported it to the police, and the police had some idea who it might be, but they never followed up on it. So the piece of metal was gone forever, at least from the possession of the woodses. But uh, it was an interesting story, and it just shows that uh, uh, you know people are watching. You know, people are watching. Who knows? Maybe one of them was in the Air Force. We don't know. But the strange piece of metal was so strange that. Somebody had to have it. Well, I noticed in the book you talk quite a bit about the different uh, military groups that would come in at different times in people's homes and rip up their boards and go through their water tanks and because they were they knew that people had gone out there and picked up some of these pieces and they were trying to find them. And uh, you know, you write about that. Give us a little bit more information about how that was working. Yes. of course, now you got to remember now that it was a weather balloon, right? <laughs> and uh, so the uh, what they did besides the, the death threats was they would go, especially around to the ranchers, they would go into the house, someone's house, a ranch house, unannounced, rip up their floorboards, and we get this from several uh, uh, people who were children back then witnessing this. They would rip up the floorboards. They would go into the closets, rip up the, the floorboards in there. They would empty the uh, water tanks, you know, that, uh, to, that would water the cattle. They would empty the water tanks. They would rip up rip open the cattle feed bags, the burlap bags of cattle feed, looking for purloined uh, pieces of wreckage. That's how brutal they were looking for this downed weather balloon, no doubt. So they they didn't, they pulled no punches on this. They were looking for every piece that they could find that they might have heard someone talking about. And uh, today they they could they just could not do that they just could not do that. But back then, you know they're in a they're in a dusty little town in the southwest without any telephones or electricity, and uh, uh, they they felt that they could get away with anything, and uh, they, they certainly did. did. <laughs> yeah, they did. So so Sheriff Wilcox, he never ran for office again. And then um, I think they must have given him shots or they must have given him LSD or something that made him go crazy. He went into a mental institution. Uh, He tried to, I think, hurt his wife or something like that. So they just totally destroyed this man. Yes. uh, He he died long before we ever heard about Roswell. He died in 1961. Well, when... We heard the first, and his wife, Inez, died in 1978, which is just about the time that uh, uh, Stan Friedman was uh, running into Jesse Marcel. So uh, she was also gone by the time we got on the case. And uh, so 
we talked to the Wilcox daughters. He, he, they had two daughters, Phyllis and Elizabeth. And the first words out of their mouth when we asked them about uh, how did Roswell affect uh, uh, the family, what, their first words were, it destroyed my it destroyed my father, it destroyed George Wilcox. And we're thinking, oh, my goodness, how, how could the – I mean, you know, sure, the landing of a UFO, you know, is, is 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 certainly something that's startling, but I don't think it's something that would destroy a person. So uh, we didn't understand it at the time why th- th- this event would destroy uh, the sheriff. We They said he never ran for office again, and that's pretty much all they told us. It was the grandchildren who gave us the true story of what happened. A granddaughter named Barbara Duggar and a grandson named George George McGuire, uh, Phyllis McGuire's son. And it turns out that uh, Wilcox, the sheriff, after delivering the death threats that he was instructed to, to do, one day they're sitting in the sheriff. He's sitting in the sheriff's office, and here comes the um, the military again. They they pull up in jeeps with armed men, and in comes this tall fellow, this tall officer. He grabs Wilcox, puts him in a hammerlock, and shoves him up against the wall like a common criminal. And this is the sheriff of Chavez County. What is going on here? Well, it turns out that they wanted to, uh, when the rancher first came into town, he came into, Mac Roswell, he came into town with two boxes of wreckage. This is this is the beginning of the Roswell incident. The, he comes into town, the sheriff's office, with two boxes of wreckage. One box is given to the military, and the other box remains at the sheriff's office. Well, the military, when they found out about that, they rushed over to the sheriff's office to, to to get that second box of wreckage and while they were there they accosted they um roughed up the sheriff well let me ask you didn't the sheriff take it to a bar and show it to all his friends didn't he do that well that was mac brazel that was that mac was the brazel. rancher okay. yes that was mac brazel he didn't know what to make out of it he had a sheep pasture full of the strange metal that his sheep would not cross to, to go to the water. So he took a piece to uh, a bar in Corona, Corona, New Mexico, and showed it around there. And uh, some of the people there said, well, we don't know what this is, but uh, if, it came from, if it came from the sky, then, then you got to go to Roswell because the Air Force is responsible for everything that comes from the sky. So that's how he got to Roswell. But uh, as far as Wilcox is concerned, uh, they roughed him up. And uh, his wife, Inez, the the family lived upstairs above the the sheriff's office. That was part of the deal was that they got to live right above the sheriff's office upstairs in an apartment. She heard all this going on down there, all the roughing up, and she comes down. And they sat her and uh, her husband down, and they said, "Okay, you did a good job in, uh, you know, going around to the uh, people in Roswell and telling them to keep quiet. Now we're telling you to keep quiet 
And if you ever talk about this, we will kill you, the sheriff of Chavez County, his wife, and their children and grandchildren. They will kill all of them. So so how's that for a thank you for a good a job well done? Well, yeah. that wasn't... That wasn't the end of it for the Wilcoxes. Wow. Two days later, Wilcox gets a call from the, the base. They want to see him again. Apparently, they weren't quite convinced that he didn't need a little more coaxing. Right. So his wife, the story came from his wife to their grandchildren, and we, we got the story from the grandchildren. According to Inez, when he came back from the base it, he looked like he had been roughed up again, and he told he told Inez he, that he didn't want to be sheriff anymore, so he never ran again. And, well, she uh, ran, didn't she? And she lost, right? She ran in his place. She was very bitter, and she was trying to make a point that you just they couldn't do that to them. They could not do that to them, and she was going to show them by running for sheriff herself, and wow. she lost. But by just a small margin, and uh, their opponents uh, tried to smear them with uh, all kinds of uh, oh, they UFO stuff, and that they were crazy. And according yeah. to the family, George, the the sheriff, after this, he did go crazy. Yeah, I know. I, I read he that. He did go crazy. He ultimately he wound up in a mental institution for a short time before he died. He attacked his wife Inez. Uh, according to his grandson, he was he was paranoid. He would jump up out of his chair when a car went by, rush over to the window as if he was afraid someone was looking for him and was coming after him. Oh, so he he was uh, he was <laughs> paranoid for sure, and uh, he died young of uh, and Inez to her dying day in 1978 believed that the Air Force had done something to him, had given him a shot or something that resulted in an early onset of Alzheimer's, because that's what he ultimately died of very young. That's what they said he died of. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, okay, to change the subject a little bit, uh, you mentioned that there was an NFL football star and star broadcaster who was also there in 1947 when this incident occurred. Who is that? Yes, uh, this is a happier story, uh, Lavander. Uh, most of the stories of how the the incident affected people are sort of negative, especially with you know when you when you meld in the death threats, right? It's mostly negative. But here's a case where it uh, uh, it the, the, it had no effect on the witness, and his name was Tom Brookshire. He was a star football player for the Philadelphia Eagles and he later became a number one broadcaster for CBS news for CBS of the NFL football games in the 1970s he broadcasted the games with a fellow named Pat Summerall who was a place kicker for the New York Giants so the two of them formed the uh, CBS's number one uh, game crew that uh, for the game of the week, but uh, in 1947, Brookshire was 16 years old, lived in Roswell. His father owned a 
service station on Main Street in Roswell. And that's where all of the, the besides the local citizenry, that's where the airmen and the, 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 the Air Force personnel would go to fill up their cars. They're the, the ones that had automobiles, they would, they would go to his father's gas station to, to fill up. And in the summertime, uh, young Tom Brookshire would uh, uh, work for his father at his gas station as a, uh, uh, I don't know, you call him a gas jockey. He would, he would pump the gas, right? So uh, he got to know a number of the fellas from the base in that, in that way. Also, Tom was a three-sport athlete, baseball, football, and basketball, and they occasionally played teams from the air base. So he got to know quite a few of the airmen there. Well, I didn't know he was from Roswell until uh, a couple years ago. I was down there in July with my wife for the festival uh, in which uh, Don Schmidt and myself are speakers every year. And so we got there a day early, and I was showing my wife around Roswell, and we, we wound up over at the New Mexico Military Institute, which is a famous high school, a military high school in Roswell. And we're walking around there. We came upon the football stadium, beautiful football stadium. So I'm looking in the, in the open end there. It's in the summertime, so there's no game going on. I'm looking at the green grass and the – and the empty seats, and uh, yeah, I, you know, I played football in high school, so I'm sort of thinking, oh my goodness, this is wonderful. And so uh, my wife says, hey Tom, come over here, I want to show you something. So I go over there, and here she's looking at this this uh, bronze plaque that's that's uh, on a on a pedestal just as you enter the stadium, and on it uh, are about, about a dozen names. And all our football players that I recognized their names as being pro football players that played for various teams. Well, the plaque, the inscription said, on this plaque are the names of pro football players who played at least one game in this stadium when they were in high school. And one of the names there was Tom Brookshire. I said, oh, my goodness, Tom Brookshire i got to find out about this uh, when I get back home. Well, it turns out, when I looked him up on the Internet, it turns out that he was from Roswell. I said, oh, my goodness. So I called, up, I called him up. This is like, this was like 2008 now. I called him up, and his answering, answering machine went on. So I said, okay, I gotta, I gotta leave a message that he's gonna, that'll make sure that he'll call me back, that I'm just not some sort of crank. So I told him, I said, Tom, I, uh, I remember you as an Eagles player for the, for a long time. You were a terrific cornerback. You could cover the best receivers in the National Football League, except one guy, <laughs> and, it, and his name was Ray Renfro. Who used to play for the Cleveland Browns? You couldn't cover him, and so I, I hung up and I said, "Okay, he he's gonna go." Well, within ten minutes, he called me back, and it, and the answering machine went on. And so he says, "Hey, listen, Carrie, I could too cover Ray Renfro." <laughs> so I knew I knew I was home free. We had a long conversation. Very nice guy. We talked like he talked like he knew me, and uh, he didn't know me from anybody. And uh, we talked about Roswell. 
and his time with the Eagles, and he turns out that uh, Tom, he said, you know, I asked him about the 47 inches. He says, yeah, I remember that. Now, Tom was a guy, you've met people like this. They're sort of, they're affable. They see humor in everything. Everything is a hu- something for the humor mill. And Tom is that sort of guy. He sees humor in everything. Well, he, he said that back in 47, when this happened, it was like an iron curtain had dropped around the base. Nobody could get in or out, and uh, nobody, you know, they're thinking, what's going on here? And after the curtain went up, the, the, the town and the base were never the same again to each other. There was an element of distrust that just uh, was pervasive. And uh, he said the fellows that came to the gas station, they wouldn't talk to him anymore. These were friends of his. They wouldn't talk to him anymore. And uh, he says something had happened, and we were no longer friends with one another. And uh, uh, but we had heard that from a number of others as well. Uh, one other thing was that uh, some of Tom's friends from high school. They said, "Have you seen what uh, Roy Tyner has? Roy Tyner was a welder in town." He said, uh, "Roy has this. Uh, he's got this funny piece of metal that you won't believe what it does. He says uh, it's indestructible." And so, of course, Tom said, okay, let's go over, let's let's see what it is. So they all go over to Roy Tyner's welding shop. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a welding shop, but they're not the cleanest places in the world. They're, they're greasy and gritty and uh, uh, all kinds of uh, stuff uh, strewn around, and Roy Tyner's shop was the same. So uh, Roy sees them there, and he says, what do you guys want? He says, we want to see that piece of metal you got he says i ah, get out of here and they say well we're not leaving till we see it he, so he he puts his welding torch down goes over to his greasy desk opens one of the drawers and pulls out this piece of uh look like aluminum so he watches he, he goes over to the boys he holds his right arm out shoulder shoulder height she he holds his arm out straight wads up this piece of metal in his hand opens his hand and out floats this piece of metal. It's about uh, four by six, something like that. It looks like aluminum. It's just floating there. It, 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 it's instead of falling to the floor like they expected, it's just slowly floating in the air. And so he grabs it again, and they say, do that again. So he does the same thing again, and it, it just floats in the air. And he says, okay, seen enough, now get out of here. So they all leave, but that was one of the pieces of metal recovered that someone had given to Roy Tyner. And it got around town that he had that piece. Ultimately, he lost it because he stored it underneath his uh, the seat of his truck. And he a few years later, he sold the truck, but he had forgotten that the piece was there. And uh, one day he was his wife, and I interviewed her directly on this, and she said he he, he came in with this wild look on his face. Where's it? Where is it? Where is it? And she says, where's what? And he, he says, that piece of metal from the flying saucer. He says, well, you, you kept it under the seat of your truck. Oh, that's right. That's right. And so he goes out like a wild man and uh, looking for his truck, 
He finally found who, who owned the truck. This is now a few years later, but the piece was missing. And uh, that's, uh, they, they never did find out who, where the piece went. And Tom Brookshire, he went on to become a uh, NFL football player, beloved in Philadelphia. He was a beloved athlete. He also became a broadcaster. He also, when his uh, NFL broadcasting career was over, he became part owner of a radio station, and he initiated what they call 24-7 all-sports talk radio. He started that here in Philadelphia, and uh, it's still going strong. It's the top radio station in the, in the city. And the show that uh, Tom started, it was an early morning talk show about sports, of course. That's, that show is the number one show still on that radio station. And uh, he died of a virulent form of cancer. I always intended to interview him uh, by videotape, but uh, he died before I could uh, do it because he uh, he came down with uh, a form of cancer from from detection to to death was six months, and nobody yeah. knew he was even sick, and he was gone. Well, maybe he was talking too much. Could be, could yeah. be. He was he was quite a fellow. the The event itself didn't seem to phase him, you know, as far as, you know, bothering him because he was happy to talk about it. He made fun of it, uh, but nevertheless, he did have a first-hand, two first-hand experiences with the with the wall of silence and with the seeing this piece of wreckage uh, perform its uh, little miracles there. Uh, and uh, but he never lost his sense of humor. And uh, that's one of the one of the happier stories uh, in the book. Right. Now you've written several other books about Roswell, haven't you? Yes. the The Children of Roswell, which came out this fe- February, late February, was our fourth book about Roswell. We fr- we wrote our first one in 2008, called the Witness, called Witness to Roswell. And it became the number one UFO book, selling UFO book in the world for two years, 2007-2008. It did so well that we wrote a second edition of it in 2009, which also became the number one uh, UFO book for 2009. So those were our first two. Our third book came out in 2013. It was called Inside the Real Area 51, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now, Area 51 is another term that is known around pretty much around the world, isn't it? Area 51. And when you hear the term Area 51, you think mostly of aliens. Oh, isn't that where they have the aliens? Well, Area 51 was constructed in the mid-1950s to develop our spy planes, the U-2, the SR-71, Blackbird, and and high-tech, high-performance aircraft. They still do that. Well, that used to be done at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. And if... 
Area 51 has or ever had aliens there, they were first at Wright-Patterson. So that's why we say Wright-Patterson, which is not as well known as Area 51, was really the first Area 51 because it uh, not only did all this research in aircraft, but it also, we know for a fact, that's where the Roswell wreckage and the bodies were ultimately taken. So there was a little play in words. And that was our third book. And, of course, our fourth book is the uh, current one, The the Children of Roswell. Well, I want to tell our audience that this is a wonderful book. And if you're interested in the Roswell story, you must get this one because it it really branches out and gives you descriptive um, reasons to, to read the book. I mean, it's like, wow. I was very impressed with the way you wrote it. It keeps you on the edge of your seat. And right now I'm looking at the time, and I would like to um, pull Ariel over from the switchboard. Uh, Would you be able to maybe answer some questions if we have any callers calling in? Absolutely. Okay, so Ariel, back to you, honey. And thank you so much for being on our show. We'll talk later. My pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, well... um at this time, if anyone listening has a comment or question for Tom, if you are already on the switchboard, then you just need to press 1 so that we know you want to come on the air. And if you're listening on your computer, then you'll need to dial 917-889-8292, and then after you're in, press 1. And while we are um, waiting to see if we have any questions, um are there any other stories that you um, of witnesses? Now I'm gathering that the title, the children of Roswell. These are the the children of witnesses and and the um, people whose families were involved. Is that right? Yes. Uh, let me tell you what, what's different about this book from the other Roswell books that we wrote, and and for the most part, all of the other Roswell books. They, it's they're mostly about what happened, where it happened, when it happened, uh, uh, and who was involved. And, you know, pretty much one, two, three, four. Uh, The Children of Roswell, what we did is we we tried to develop, uh, uh, it's called character development. We we told more about the individuals, who they were, uh, why they behaved the way they did, uh, how long they, you know, what, more character development than in any other previous book. And it seems to have worked because uh, of the feedback that we've gotten has really been uh, uh, very heartening to us. So that's the difference. And, again, we focus, because most of the, Ariel, most of the participants are gone now. Uh, You figure if you're 20 years old in 1947, you are, let's see, that's uh, 70 years ago. You uh, Next year you'll be 90 years old. If you're 20 uh-huh. years old, then you'll be 90 next year. So most of them are gone. So we are left with, even the children are, are going now. Because the, uh, the, the, the UFO Museum in Roswell was founded by three people, one of whom was a first lieutenant out at the air base. Well, he died in uh, 2005, and his daughter took over 
the directorship of the museum in 2005, and now she's gone. And so the children are going, and we're increasingly now talking to grandchildren. So it was a combination of character development plus opportunity of who we who we can talk to. So mm-hmm. it, it was an... We thought it was a natural progression, and uh, we're we're happy that uh, so far everybody seems to to like it. Well, I think that number one, um, it's it's a really good angle because yeah, there are books that go over the the just the facts and, and the details and and trying to piece together um, a, a a timeline of some kind, but the human but, aspect of it and the the um, well, exactly let's just say that right. the tactics, the yep, tactics exactly that were right. used. First, first three books, we it was like a jigsaw puzzle, putting a jigsaw puzzle together. And this book, we just we tried to concentrate, as you say, on the human aspect involved. How did it affect people? How did it affect families? What happened to them? Why did it happen? And uh, uh, to show that there's actually people involved who were affected by this and it I, I tell you it wasn't a weather balloon that ma- that made them uh, be- behave as they have yeah well i mean that's it today in 2016 uh, it's ludicrous it to say, it's like oh no just the weather balloon um i mean it's it's unfortunate but but funny at the same time that uh, you know, they, like you said, they couldn't get away with that today. If they had said, it, "Well, it wasn't a spaceship, but it was one of our latest uh, uh, fighter jets or uh, some some high tech aircraft that crashed," we wouldn't be here tonight talking about it. But they went so far afield. Uh, you've heard the term "a bridge too far." They went uh-huh. too far afield with this weather balloon story. Now. The 509th Bomb Group in Roswell, that was the group that they ended World War II. They were created to drop atomic bombs, and that's what they did uh, by dropping one on Hiroshima and one on Nagasaki. And that was the group that, re- that uh, after the war was over, they deployed to Roswell. So they were the highest, the highest of our military uh, groups. And... To think that with their trigger, with their fingers on the atomic trigger as they were, and if they can't tell the difference between a weather balloon and an interplanetary spaceship, well, then that would not fill me with a lot of uh, confidence. <laughs> okay. I agree with you there. So um, we have a caller that is um, ready to go here. So you're going to be talking to Christian. As soon as I get the microphone open, hi Christian, welcome to the show. You're on the air with Tom Carey. You can ask a question. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, um, Tom. My name is Christian. Christian Ann. I wrote a book called Exploring Sacred Space, and Lavender actually several years ago interviewed me. There are a few chapters in that book where I tell an account where in 1977. I had gone out to Alamogordo, New Mexico, and happened to meet Dan Fry. Um, are you familiar with Dan Fry? 
Uh, yes, Dan Fry, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was uh, in the 1950s, he was one of the contactees. Is that, that's what they called them back then. Correct. Is that- correct, yeah. Um, it was fascinating. I got to know Dan over two years, and he shared the most fascinating stories with me of things he learned from the extraterrestrials and his, his experiences. And then in the summer of 1979, I actually met an extraterrestrial friend who he had come to town and introduced as a uh, psychic surgeon. And um, the whole event was so fascinating. I, I wrote it in my book. Um, well, it certainly uh, it sounds that, uh, that it would be exciting. Uh, I, I never met uh, Daniel. I did I did meet Howard Menger, but I never did meet Daniel Fry. And uh, but I I remember him from the Long John Neville show, who uh, out of New York, W O R in New York. I used to listen to uh, Long John Neville all the time. And oh, yeah. uh, Daniel Fry, uh, I I think. He, uh, I, I'm sure he wrote a book. I can't remember what it was called now. He wrote, well, they were two small, almost booklets back then, which I read first, and then the people I was staying with happened to be friends with him, and I ended up meeting him. But they were called um, To Men of Earth and the White Sands Incident. Now they're published as one called The White Sands Incident. Uh, but it's out of print. It's hard to get. Yeah. See, back in the fifties, uh, there was almost there was very little information about UFOs. Uh, I mean, today, I mean, there, there are thousands of books. You go on the internet. Uh, there's all kinds of material. Yeah, you can look up anything on the internet. Right. Uh, yeah. And there's thousands of whatever aspect of UFOs that you're interested in. You can you can find a books on it but back in the 50s there was almost nothing there was almost right. nothing. even in 1977 when i had gone out there there was i mean it was so rare to hear that there was someone who had written an account of his encounters and i was so excited that they had the book for me to read um, the whole thing was just so fascinating and I ended up getting a ride from there, um, from Alamogordo to Phoenix, with a guy whose uncle had been in the group who had gone out to collect the, uh, the collect and catalog the remnants from one of the crashes. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so the whole ride from Alamogordo to. Uh, to Phoenix with just well, you know, Alamo is uh, it was uh, Holloman Air Force Base, and uh, right, that's, that's uh, where the German cap, you know, the V two rockets at White Sands uh, were launched, and right. so yeah. we believe that Alamogordo was uh, uh, certainly very close to Roswell. It's uh, uh, not not that far. So we believe that uh, there was a connection at the time, either 
some of the wreckage went over to Alamogordo or or some high up uh, officials came into Alamogordo because they didn't want to go into Roswell be too obvious so they went over to Alamogordo and that's where they uh uh, were able to uh, uh, discuss what was going on and see some of the wreckage. Maybe a body or two went over there. We don't know. But uh, I was. You, you mentioned uh, you you met a fellow who claimed that he was a part of the the, the wreckage uh, retrieval. Right. It was a whole fascinating two years from seventy seven to seventy nine. Um, when I first got to Alamogordo, I went on to visit my sister in Phoenix and ended up living there for a while. Um, and I got a ride with a guy whose uncle was one of the retrieval crew. And he told stories that his uncle had told once when the guys were all having some beers in the kitchen on one holiday. How you, he you, had, you, don't, you wouldn't remember his name, would you? If I think about it, um, I can give you, or Lavendar has my email address, and my website is exploringsacredspace.com. That's where my book is. I'm sure you'd love to read of my account. I'm, I'm very interested in who, who you might have been talking to, because uh, certainly this uh, being part of the, the, the wreckage uh, retrieval is, certainly rings true. I would be very, very interested who, to find out who that was. I have not been in touch with him since then. And the last I know of where he was was in California. I don't even know. I no, tried looking the, him up once. And this was the, you know, the nephew. I tried yeah. looking him up once, and there were like 20 or 50 people in the country by that name. But I would have to think of his name. Um, they can give you my phone number so mm-hmm. when we hang up and we can be in touch. Okay, great. And uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, either Lavender or Ariel can, can email, because they have my email address, they can email your uh, phone number to me. Great. I emailed them to get your email address. Um, so maybe they can give that to me, too. <laughs> Yeah, so you have my permission. You have my permission. Okay, great talking with you. Oh, see, this this is how we get our this is how we get our information. This is how we get our information. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I'd be very interested that perhaps that's somebody I already talked to, but I, I'd like to know uh, the, the person's name because I have the base yearbook uh, from 1947, oh. and it's got most of the airmen. Uh, from the base from 1947. I also have the city directory for, from Roswell for 1947, If he, in case he oh lived off gosh. base. Okay. Yeah, I will think about it, and I will come up with that name. I would certainly it appreciate it. And it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you, but I would, I would uh, certainly appreciate it. Uh, uh, think about it hard, okay? <laughs> I will. I will. Take care. <laughs> Thank you. Uh huh. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for calling, Christian. Bye bye. You're welcome. Bye bye. Well, you just never know. Yeah, I got a <laughs> like lead. You, you never know where the leads will come from. Absolutely. So, um, <laughs> let me just say one more time that if you have a question or comment for Tom, 
Uh, if you're already on the switchboard, all you do is press 1. And if you're listening um, on the computer, then you need to dial 917-889-8292. And then once you're in, press 1 um, if you wish to speak with Tom. So let me just ask you, um, when you were small growing up, before you went to college, before you went in the Air Force, did you, so you have mean any the kind Jurassic of... period? The Jurassic period. <laughs> yeah. Well, did you have an interest at all in in science fiction or any anything related to my this? My brother did. My brother did. Uh, my older brother, who's now a professor emeritus at a major university, uh, he used to read things like newspapers <laughs> when we were growing up. And uh, I was always out playing. I was a sort of a ruffian. And uh, one day, my brother, he's, uh, he says, "Hey, Tom, listen to this." And he talk, He read an article in the newspaper, and it was about the Aztec crash. Now, there's a book out on about the Aztec crash, but the article was about the Aztec crash, and he mentioned. I remember he mentioned New Mexico, and I said, oh, you, you must mean Mexico, because I didn't know, at that time, I didn't know there was a state, New Mexico, you know. <laughs> and I said, oh, you mean Aztec Mexico. He says, no, New Mexico. And we had an, argu- <laughs> we had an argument about it till, until he showed me in the newspaper that it was New Mexico. So that's what, my first encounter with these things called flying saucers. So my brother... Uh, he belonged to the Science Fiction Book Club. There was a book club called the Science Fiction Book Club. And one of the books he ordered was a book called The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by a fellow named Captain Edward Ruppel, who was the former head of Project Blue Book, the Air Force project in the 1950s that... uh, uh, was charged with investigating UFO reports. And that book sat around the house for about two years. I could still picture it. And uh, I could picture it. It had the Lubbock lights, this, this combination of lights in the form of a V on the cover. And I can still picture that. And it sat around the house for about two years before I finally picked it up and read it. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is really interesting about the UFOs up up until about the mid-1950s. And uh, I said, oh, that that's really interesting. So I, I read a few more books on the subject by Donald E. Kehoe, who still is my favorite author of all time for UFOs. Uh, he was an ex-Marine Corps captain. I think he was a major. He was a major. And after he got out of the Marine Corps, he became the proponent the main proponent to get the government to investigate and release what they knew about UFOs, and this is at like the nineteen late nineteen fifties. So, wow. Uh, he wrote a half a dozen books, all of them very well written, and uh, uh, so that. So I, I guess you would call me. I, at that point, I was not even a UFO buff because I would, uh, you know, I read other things and. Uh, but in 1966, I read a book called Flying Saucers, Serious Business by um, 
Frank Edwards, a, a news journalist, uh, and that was a had a big effect on me because at that time there wasn't much outside of the Kehoe books. There wasn't much going on in UFOs, you know. So in 1966 comes this book, Flying Saucer: Serious Business, which puts the subject back on the the spotlight. And then jumping ahead to 1980, I read this book called The Roswell Incident, the first book about Roswell. I had I had never uh, heard of Roswell. I, I thought they might be talking. When I first heard the name, I said, because I lived in California in Sacramento for a number of years, and my wife is from Sacramento, and uh, there was a town just east of Sacramento called Roseville. I, I said, oh, they, you must mean Roseville. No, 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 <laughs> Roswell. And, uh, okay, so uh, I read it, and the book blew me away because we're talking about not reported lights in the sky, not, uh, you know, not uh, things that there was no, you know, not much to sink your teeth into, you know, you know, other than, oh, there goes a light in the sky. Well, isn't that wonderful? This was a, a purported crash, a cover-up. It had uh, strange wreckage. It had little bodies. It had everything. It just everything that a nice mystery would have. Cover-up, mm-hmm. threats, the works. And that, that just blew me away. So uh, the 1980s goes along, and there's really nothing more about Roswell until the late 80s, when these two fellows, one of one of whom is my current co-author Don Schmidt, and another fella, were reopening the Roswell case. So I contacted them about the alleged archaeologists who, as the story went, were the first ones on the scene and found the crashed disc and uh, because my background in anthropology I said uh, what have you done with the anthropologist they said really not much so I said well since they were allegedly from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia uh, I live just outside of Philadelphia I said let me uh, let me have a crack at it I'll go down to the university and see what I can find and uh, uh, that was my introduction to actually being actively involved in the case. The year was 1991, February, and here we are 25 years later, and I'm still on the case, and I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. So. Well, it's it's a, a fascinating and spellbinding mystery, and we really appreciate that dedication that it takes uh, for you to continue to uncover more and more of the story. And as you say, you kind of put the pieces together, and then you start seeing a bigger picture. Yes, so, uh, our uh, our job, because each witness only knows a little piece of the story, just like a jigsaw puzzle. Each little uh-huh. piece is a little piece of the picture. And it's our job to put these little pieces together into a framework that makes sense. And with uh, several hundred witnesses, each of whom has a little piece of the story, we believe we've done that. And what's mm-hmm. uh, what's gratifying to us is that the the new witnesses that we come across, they are not adding to our what we know about the case. They're just reinforcing uh, 
mostly they're reinforcing what we already know in our framework. So that well, makes that's, us that's uh, great, you know, validation. Yes, it's 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 validation yeah. that we got this we've got the story right uh, from the date of the crash to what happened and uh, even what happened over the years. Uh, so it makes us feel that that we've really you know we've pretty much done a pretty good job on this of because when we first got started on this we things were really fluid and you know when did it happen well, you know and where and uh, who was you know who was involved and we pretty much know all of that right now so mm-hmm. uh uh the the sad part is that we can see the case fading away before our eyes because everybody's passing away and right. uh so our mandate is to find everybody that we can who's still alive, whether they're a first or second-hand witness, who will talk to us. And just as important, we are still looking for a piece of physical evidence, most notably the memory metal. That's what we're looking for, is a piece of the memory metal. We've had so many stories about it, but they all seem to have disappeared as far as having a piece of metal in the family. They all seem to have disappeared one way or another. So, but we're on the case to the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe our end. <laughs> kudos, kudos to you, and we are so glad that you are so dedicated. And I want to thank you for bringing this information to our audience. And I know that you're hanging on every word, and I'm sure that um, a lot of our what, what, listeners they're, they're will pick up. hanging themselves on my every word. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're hanging on your every word. Uh, because I mean it's fascinating. This is this is what our audience is very open to. So <clears throat> I just want to thank you for this. And um, before I wrap up, I just want to mention again that your website is RoswellInvestigator.com. Your newest book, The Children of Roswell, and your I would say classic works, <laughs> A Witness to Roswell, um, and the sequel also, bestsellers. So. We encourage everybody to take up, take a time and, and uh, pick up a copy and learn more about one of the most fascinating mysteries in our recent history. You know, it's, it's, so, there, are, there are three mysteries left to us from the 20th century. Do you know what they are? Um, who killed JFK, what happened in Roswell, and uh, what's the other... You got you got two of them. That's very good. That's very good. The third one is probably my own uh, construct. It's uh, what what really led to Pearl Harbor. Was there a cover up there? Ah. Pearl Harbor, nineteen forty one, and to me, that's the third big mystery. And uh, I'm work I'm working on that uh, along with my Roswell research. So. But you, you, you were very good. You got uh, JFK, who killed JFK, uh, Roswell, and uh, the third one for me is uh, uh, what happened at, at uh, Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Well, we know and what that happened. goes right along with what happened at the World Trade Center. <clears throat> you know, that's that's yes. There's there's yes. many more books to be written about that. But that happened in the 21st century, though. Oh, that's right. That's right. We said 20th century. 
(laughs) Well, Tom, it's just been a pleasure having you with us, and certainly any time that you have um, release another book, let us know, and we'd love to have you come back on the show and uh, share your work and findings with our audience. Well, thank you so much, Ariel. It's been my pleasure, and uh, it was a Fast two hours. <laughs> well, you know, that's the mark of a really good guest when the time flies by, and we really are just about running out of time. So I uh, just wanted to, once again, thank you for being with us on Starseed Radio Academy. Well, you take care. It's been my pleasure. Well, thank you so much. And with that, um, we are going to wrap it up, and we'll be back next week. And we want to thank you all for listening. Until then, take care. Good night, everybody. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 